May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Clive Christian number one is the world's most expensive perfume. It's so expensive that they actually put it on the box. Clive Christian number one, the world's most expensive perfume. You know it costs a lot if that's your tagline. Um, The former Kate Middleton wore it on the day that she married Prince William, the future King of England. That it happened in an Anglican church, uh, maybe a coincidence, maybe a not. Um, But if you went out to buy yourself a 1.7 ounce bottle of this perfume, it would cost you $3,000. $3,000 for a, a bottle of perfume that would fit in the palm of your hand. You could get maybe like a little sampling I saw for eight to $900. You can get a, a, a tiny little bit of it. Um, but if you want the full experience, three grand. Um, and I suppose if one was fixing to become part of the royal family, the first thing they would do is not say fixing. Um, if, they were, if you were fixing to become part of the royal family, you know, a little spritz from an uber expensive bottle of perfume sort of makes sense. But in most of the world today, I don't know if you know this, most people in the world live on about $2 a day. Um, so if you took the, the, the entire salaries of of four men in, in Haiti or, or Mozambique or Burundi or somewhere like that, it would take them, four men, an entire year collectively to buy a bottle of this perfume. I mean, could you imagine, like, like four guys like hoard our resources just to buy, it would be absolutely absurd. Of course, it's not a luxury for everyone. It's for a few that can afford it. But even among the few that could afford it, it's still a precious commodity. It's, a, it's not to be a daily sort of a perfume. It's a, it's a rare fragrance. It's, it's meant to be infrequent in its use. You have to be careful. You don't want to waste this, nor do you want to treat it with contempt. When I was growing up, my mother used to have phrases. Um, some of them I can't repeat. But she would have a few that she would say like, stuff like this, like, waste not, want not. You know, this was a big thing. Um, my grandmother grew up in, during the Depression, and my mother grew up with a grandmother who, or with a mother who had you know, lived through the Depression. So I, I'm also having to deal with a mother who lived with a mother who went through the Depression. And, and so it, it still continues to hang on. And in our family, you didn't waste resources. I still, I, I, I had the most difficult time throwing anything away. And if you came in my and looked at my garage or in my basement, you would say, oh, I see, you really do. Um, I just don't want to let go of things because I don't like to waste. And naturally, I'm the sort of person who gets really kind of bent out of shape about government spending. I went and looked for a few, just a couple examples I thought you would like. Um, Last year, the National Institute of Health spent $5 million on a campaign to get hipsters to quit smoking. Because they thought if, if, it, if it stopped being cool, then, then other people wouldn't do it as well. Maybe that's not such a, a waste. But then, over a six-year period of time, the Department of Defense, six years, spent $100 million on commercial airline tickets that were never used. They bought some tickets two times for the same person, and she or he didn't fly on either one of them. $100 million. The National Institute of Health, again, $335,000 on a study to find out, I love this one, if couples are happier when the woman calms down quickly after an argument. I quote from the research, marriages that were the happiest were the ones in which the wives were able to calm down quickly during marital conflict. 
<laughs> you don't say. <laughs> um, so all these spendings uh, that, that go on. Um, $100,000 for a hammer, you know this one, and the $10,000 toilet seats and the $80,000 lobby art and so on and so on. Money that seems wasted. Could have been better spent or even not spent at all, right? And, um, you know, it's like you almost expect that there is a, um, a government department that pours Clive Christian number one on the floor just to see what it's like. You know, what would happen? Waste not, want not. And if you had been in the home where Jesus was getting ready to eat that day, you might think that one of the sisters of Lazarus works for the you know, Department of the Interior. <laughs> she, like, is, is a lavish waster. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. Um, in chapter 11 of John's Gospel, uh, there's word is sent out. This friend of yours, Lazarus, is sick. He's sick unto death. He, he needs you know, emergency treatment. People have come from all over to pray for him. Jesus, will you please come? And while everybody else comes to visit Lazarus, everybody else comes in and prays and, and, and does all the, everything they can do, um, Jesus does not. He intentionally stays longer in the place where he was and does not go to Lazarus. Eventually, though, he does. When he arrives, his friend has been dead already for four days. Well, the story is that Jesus restores Lazarus. He calls him and, and, and brings him back to life. He's resuscitated. It's his seventh and final miracle in the Gospel of John, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that's immediate backstory to today's text, which begins like this. Six days before the Passover came, um, before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. I'll bet they did. You know, you throw a dinner for somebody who raises your brother from the dead. I mean, this is this is a time to have a party, isn't it? Everybody's excited. And Jesus is in the house. And John says, and Martha served. Of course she did. We've seen this all through the gospel, right? Martha is this servant person who's serving. Um, and, uh, and so she is, is making the dinner. And I think that Mary disappears. That Martha is serving, Jesus and his friends are reclining around the table, and Mary disappears. She's gone. Um, she's gone for a while, perhaps long enough that for them to, to finish their meal. And I think this is a, 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 you know, a recurring event for, Mary, uh, for Martha, rather, that, that here she's working and Mary's nowhere to be found. And so uh, it, so it was in, in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, when, when Jesus finally arrives at, at Lazarus's um, funeral, he's, he's already in the tomb, everybody's crying. Martha comes out to see him and says, where were you? But Mary is nowhere to be found then. She wouldn't even come out to see Jesus at first. Where were you? And so she's gone. Where is she going? She is finding this little treasure she has hidden. It's a little bottle about the size of a soda can, maybe smaller than that. It's a little bottle, and she's going out to find it. It's something that she is saving for her wedding day. It's not Clive Christian number one, but it's almost. Judah says it could have been sold for 300 denarii. A, a whole year's salary, this little bottle that she has is worth. And she comes back in. And you heard what happened. She walks into the room. I think at this time there's only men there. And so a woman walking into a room with no food in her hands would have itself raised a few eyebrows. And then she falls to her knees 
And she opens this bottle, this very expensive perfume, that just a few drops of it would have, would have filled the room, and she pours it all onto the feet of Jesus. This is sort of scandalous, but it actually gets more so. And then she pulls the covering off of her head and lets down her hair. Listen, women did not go into the presence of men without like coming to serve. They, they wouldn't go into that room. And then to kneel down at his feet and to pour perfume on his feet in front of the presence of all these men would have been shocking. To take off her covering of her hair and to let her hair down. If you think it sort of sounds super intimate, almost erotic, you're getting the sense of what they felt like. That these men in the room would have gasped. What is she doing? This is embarrassing. It's unimaginable. Judas mutters, what a waste. John doesn't like Judas. Um, you can tell. Every time he mentions Judas' name throughout the gospel, he has little parentheses, something like a, that son of a skunk who, you know, who, who betrayed Jesus. He always says this. And, and he says this this time. Judas says this, and John says he was just a thief. He wanted to keep the money for himself. But Judas has a point. This is a very expensive perfume. It's something that she saved for her wedding day. And she pours the entire contents, not just a little bit. She pours it all on Jesus' feet. It seems like a waste. Jesus says, no, it's prophetic. She's anointed me for burial. And I think that's true. But I think there's more than that. Why would she pour this entire contents the entire contents of this perfume upon his feet. And you know the answer. Because she's grateful. It's gratitude. Her brother was dead. And now he's alive and he's sitting at this table. You, the, the prodigal son story. Remember the father said, the son of mine was dead and now he's alive again. Her brother was literally dead and now he's alive again. And she's so grateful. And I think even more than realizing that her brother is dead and alive, she realizes that she too has hope. So she has hope for her life and even beyond. That with Jesus all things are possible and so she just wants to give the very best thing she has. I think it's masterful the way that John juxtaposes Judas's greed and Mary's lavish, you know, great gratitude and, and, and generosity. But on the one hand, you have Judas, this, this scoundrel, and you have the other hand, you have Mary, this really grateful worshiper. And this passage kind of hits me like this. I don't know how it hit you, but it makes me ask a question of myself. Am I the sort of worshiper who wants to give my all? Or am I the one who only gives a little bit that I have left over, would I give my very best to God or just, you know, what I can get by with? Am I someone who loves the Lord so much that I would willingly humiliate myself if it meant letting God know how much I love him and how important he is in my life? St. Augustine um, famously said this. He said, command whatever you will, O God, but give me the grace to do what you command. <laughs> command whatever you want. But give me the grace to do what you command. The collect for today sounds very much like that. If you have your bullets, will you open to the front where the collect is right after the, right after the curie? Um, 
It goes like, Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. What if you change the word grace to the word gift? Give your people the gift to love what you command and desire what you promise. See, I think that's it. I don't think it's just that the, the good news of the gospel isn't just that, that Mary's are good and Judas's are bad. The good news of the gospel is that Judas's can become Mary's. That those who are selfish and stingy and, 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 and you know, uh, close-fisted can become generous and kind and loving and filled with gratitude. I think that really is good news. Don't you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.